2011 wasn't the best time to be a 20-something adult or a 30-something. In fact, most everyone in America could agree the Great Recession had left behind a sense of bleakness. In those disheartening times, people turned to small comforts. Television was especially soothing. The more familiar, the better. This sentiment, a thirst for nostalgia in trying times, certainly informed conversations about programming at one major television network. The question of whether to bring back the golden era of Nickelodeon shows wasn't one of if, but when. As one network executive recalled, there was an insatiable desire to just play the hits, so to speak. Millennials especially wanted that cheeky, brash catalog of shows that had defined their childhoods. Soon enough, Nickelodeon revived a block of television called The 90s Are All That. It tugged on the heartstrings of young adults. Ratings went sky high. These shows were beloved, no doubt, bringing back memories of Saturday mornings huddled on the couch with sugary cereal and of late nights guzzling soda with friends. But distance makes the heart grow fonder, and time has a way of bringing clarity. Many viewers were shocked to realize just how many messages had been concealed within the golden age of Nickelodeon. This is The Dark Side Of, a ParCast original a show where we will delve into the seedy underbelly of pop culture icons and historical events. We aim to expose the ugly truth behind cultural moments and public figures we hold most dear, proving that there is always more to the story than meets the eye. I'm your host, Richard. And I'm Kate. This is our second episode on the dark side of the 90s. As every decade brings new challenges, a rosy tint has started to color these bygone years. But all this nostalgia obscures the more unpleasant bits of 90s history. You can find all episodes of The Dark Side Of and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream The Dark Side Of for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type The Dark Side Of in the search bar. Last week, we talked about the dawn of the internet. While the new service revolutionized a decade, It also created pervasive concerns over the future of ethics, technology, and communication. Today, we'll focus our attention on yet another screen. The small screen, that is. We'll dive into the explosive appeal of kids' television in the 1990s and the meteoric popularity of Nickelodeon. The network would carve its name from the landscape of novel programming, with larger-than-life game shows and suggestive animated series. But there's more to the story of these shows, and all of the controversy woven within them. We'll take a dive into Nickelodeon's slime right after this. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, 
but it looks like it could rain. Sierra says, save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat up old running shoes. Sierra says, save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery. Well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. A picture is worth a thousand words, right? In the early 1900s, before talkies became popular, working urbanite Americans could head for the nearest Nickelodeon, tiny theaters tucked into storefronts along city streets. For the price of a nickel, patrons were admitted to view moving pictures within a makeshift setting. And so was born the saying, put another nickel in, in the Nickelodeon. Almost a century later, the term had morphed into a commercial beast, though its new identity was still an homage to its origins. Pinwheel, a television network that originated in 1977, was renamed Nickelodeon in 1979. In just a decade, the young network vastly set itself apart from the competition. And by the 1990s, Nickelodeon had become a home for the wacky, weird, and the off-color. Eventually, it would cement this reputation through its live-action programming and animated series, programs that would be off-the-cuff and unapologetic, which catered perfectly to a very hungry market. 90s kids were primed to ingest content that both appealed to them aesthetically, with its brash actors and quirky graphics, and that catered to their own loud and rambunctious sides. These programs were only made possible by changes that swept children's television the decade before. One shift in particular had set the stage. In 1984, the FCC, which sets broadcast regulations, decided it was no longer compulsory for television stations to provide quality programming for children. Instead, broadcasters merely needed to consider the needs of children in programming decisions. Gone were the days of 1966 Sesame Street, with its wholesome anecdotes and moral takeaways. Shows were no longer obligated to enrich anything for children, which paved the way, most importantly, for marketing opportunities. The landscape of kids' TV in the 1980s was a dizzying blur of Transformers, Strawberry Shortcake, and G.I. Joe, which critics likened to half-hour advertisements. These programs created iconic, marketable characters for kids to obsess over. When the screen went dark, they craved corresponding merchandise. Thus, the era of model figurines and breakfast cereal tie-ins was born. Advertisers tried to spin this as a positive for everyone, insisting these partnerships were all, quote, unprecedented opportunities to participate in our capitalist economic system. But while companies loved this, regulators apparently did not. Briefly, it seemed like TV for Kids would be overhauled to prohibit this pipeline. 
The Children's Television Act of 1990 attempted to stall some of this mindless consumerism, but the language of the legislation was decidedly vague. The FCC simply did not delineate the difference between shows that were meant solely to entertain children and those that were meant to provide specific educational tools. Meaning basically anything could be presented as indistinctly educational, leaving Nickelodeon a pretty long runway to start building out a wacky, crass slate of shows. You Can't Do That on Television was a zeitgeisty Canadian sketch program featuring young actors. It was picked up by America's Nickelodeon to run from 1982 until 1990. And in that time, a record nine seasons were churned out in the U.S. It was the most popular show on Nickelodeon. As Vox put it, the show was beloved by American kids because it represented the anarchic spirit, the very one that would come to define the network. You Can't Do That ended its run just as the 90s were kicking off. But the program had already set a desirable precedent of messy and unorthodox shows, a stark contrast to its dry educational counterparts. Children delighted in seeing actors their own age performing comedic sketches laden with physical gags and toilet humor. Nick had struck gold. Sketch, an underutilized format for kids, served dual purposes for the network. For one, the silly, often slapstick nature drew in young viewers like Garfield to lasagna. On a more disenchanting note, the constant shuffle of sketches made it nearly impossible for kids to process the meaning of what they were laughing at. You Can't Do That was able to quite literally cut in and out of sensitive topics. Not only were the underlying themes of the sketches not explained, they often went completely above the heads of viewers. Take one of the show's recurring skits known as The Firing Squad. One of the child actors would have to outsmart a character named Al Capitan, who is dressed like a South American military general. To do so, kids often trip the actor, who would then be shot in their place. To recap, an adult actor dressed in a culturally appropriated outfit would feign being executed by a child. And that was the punchline, unacceptable on multiple levels. Still, these cringeworthy moments weren't judged on whether they were suitable jokes for kids. In fact, the abrasiveness of one you-can't-do-that sketch inadvertently created one of Nickelodeon's most enduring legacies. Slime. If an actor on the series muttered the hallowed words, I don't know, a slippery green liquid would dump on their heads, coating them in literal shame. To be slimed was to wear the dunce cap of television, and kids at home loved the physicality and surprise of seeing their peers playfully disgraced. The green goo was so popular that for a time, it was part of Nickelodeon's logo. But Slime had a complicated backstory. As the story goes, the first iteration of Slime was born in the props department of You Can't Do That. This wasn't just a humble mixture of water and green food dye. To achieve that thick, goopy texture, the first batch of Slime allegedly contained various liquids, one being green latex paint. The prop masters made it simply upon instructions, no questions asked. 
but when its purpose was revealed, they were alarmed. They didn't know the gallons of slime were going to be splashed down on the actors. According to Business Insider, there was concern that the mixture contained potentially harmful ingredients. So they were sent back to the drawing board, or the mixing buckets rather, to create a safer concoction. First, they sampled green jello mixed with flour. It was a decent but not ideal consistency. Then came cream of wheat dyed green and doctored with baby shampoo. The latter was critical. Without it, the cream of wheat allegedly hardened so quickly that it left the actor's hair full of stiff, crusty granules. While the slime recipe had solidified, the very existence of this neon sludge created another, more lingering issue. Imitatable behavior. What would it inspire kids to do at home? It appeared slime each other, which was all well and good if the mixture was just tinted jello and hot cereal. However, many parents were concerned when homemade recipes cropped up on the internet, listing the cleaning agent borax as an ingredient. This was worrisome, granted it could be toxic if ingested or if it repeatedly touched the skin. Nickelodeon obviously didn't sanction nor endorse these recipes, but the network wasn't about to downplay the popularity of slime. In fact, it set about monetizing on the goo's heyday. Take one Nickelodeon-branded product that debuted in 1992, Green Slime Shampoo. The commercials featured bubbly kids watching You Can't Do That on television, then using the shampoo to recreate their own sliming in the shower. Keep in mind that the bottle was only eight ounces, smaller than most lattes these days. By the most conservative sliming standards, each bottle would last a week at most leading, hopefully, to repeat purchases. The branded shampoo confirmed that the network hadn't divorced itself from the tactics of its 80s predecessors. Encouraging kids to slime at home was still a way to levy the purchasing power of young viewers, or rather, that of their parents. As Nick's green shampoo became a stunning success, major brands like Suave later produced it, a stage had been set for the successor to slime, namely, Gak. Coming up, Gak's darker nickname is revealed, and Double Dare becomes all the rage. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. In the 1990s, Nickelodeon introduced a variety of shoppable products to tie in with its popular slate of shows. Messy, sticky substances would be the network's hallmark. And while the notorious green slime had certainly paved the way for a substance called GAC, kids and Nickelodeon hosts alike were stern. Don't call it slime. GAC was its own thing. As Nick personality Mark Summers later explained, Gak was a more potent and sticky goop than slime. It made its debut in 1992 on Double Dare, 
a children's game show that Summers hosted. On the heel of Gack's TV premiere, a commercialized version hit toy store shelves. And to ramp up interest, Nickelodeon featured commercials with happy kids stretching an array of neon-colored putty. To their delight, they could spread it, throw it, even make fart noises with it. These young viewers, though, knew nothing of the etymology of Gack. It was only two decades later that Mark Summers would admit to Huffington Post that Gack wasn't just a cheeky moniker. It was also the street name in Philadelphia for heroin. It had become a dark inside joke for the crew and slid quite slyly into the vernacular of the show. Gack was everywhere on the sets of Double Dare. Summers explained that it was slightly easier to clean than its predecessor. He remembered, We didn't use the same green slime because if it sat out on the stage under the hot lights, an oatmeal-based slime would bake like a rock. And if you didn't get those off the set, you'd have chunks of, like, greenish plaster. But while Double Dare didn't spend too much time hosing down its set, the show had plenty of other issues that needed wrangling. Like how to curb the subtle innuendo that crept into episodes. Its contestants were paired into duos, and naturally, these teams needed names. A former participant would recall how as an 11-year-old, he was one half of the Bodacious Tatas. Adult humor aside, the main attraction of the show was, of course, the physical challenges. Some were obstacle courses, others involved more bizarre acts of sheer gross madness. One former Double Dare set designer told Vulture that to balance both and stay within production restraints was a very fine line. Exciting versus safe, gross versus unsanitary. Double Dare was known for incorporating kiddie pools filled with whipped non-dairy topping and mounds of greasy popcorn. Keeping kids interested meant keeping Nick's shows messy, which was no small task. Food was tricky, both in how to use it and how to dispose of it. For one, anything edible is notoriously risky. Set designer Byron Taylor remembered the concerns about using food in challenges, saying, You don't want a bunch of kids choking on Ritz crackers because you're doing that gag where you stuff your mouth with crackers and try to whistle. Clearly, anything classified as imitatable behavior at home was to be broached with great care. Considering how quick kids were to dump bottles of slime shampoo on their heads, producers wanted to eschew any dangerous recreations at home that might lead to costly lawsuits. The other problem, and one that was far more pervasive, was the sheer amount of edible products that Double Dare required. It wasn't just a bucket of chips here or some chocolate syrup there. Early in the show's run, parents and critics alike called out its food waste, placing the production team in the hot seat. Set designer Byron Taylor recalled that from that point on, they had to stop using anything that was identifiable as real food, meaning no nourishing food. But finding alternatives that worked under these guidelines was tedious, not to mention noxious. Sometimes they used junk foods like jello and whipped toppings, but ordinary whipped cream would go flat, so production paid for a more expensive alternative called baker's cream. 
Baker's cream was purchased by the hundreds of gallons and whipped in 60-quart mixers. According to Taylor, it took an entire bucket from the mixer to make one scoop of ice cream on the Sunday slide, one of the show's obstacle courses. He admitted it was a tremendous cost and a tremendous investment in time whipping that material up. But however wasteful, whipped topping was at least inoffensive. The show later devolved into using expired government surplus baked beans. Nearly 25 Double Dare tapings were shot with challenges involving a dunk tank filled with these rancid beans. It was as awful as it sounds, and one producer noted, at the end of the week, shooting day in, day out, under hot lights, it was pretty ripe. So ripe, in fact, that the mess couldn't simply be mopped up and thrown out. The production had to call in a septic removal truck to suction the remnants out of the studio. Indeed, keeping the Double Dare stages clean was not only time-consuming, but an incredibly expensive and laborious process. Though the show first taped in Philadelphia, production eventually moved to Orlando, Florida. There, even more extensive maintenance was required, like a specialized sewage system. Grates were installed in the studio floor so the gallons of wasted food, amongst other sludge, could be drained after each taping. On estimate, the production's cleanup crew used anywhere between 600 and 1,000 paper towels per show to wipe down the set. The task was unavoidable to mitigate safety hazards, but it nonetheless added to the extreme waste the show created. Nothing seemed to end the production crew's lamentations that the studio, after a day of hot lights, smelled like death. Eventually, the slippery, gooey glory of Double Dare wound to a close. In 1993, after its first run, a decision had been made not to renew the hit show. Surprising, but also strategic. Nickelodeon was making way for its next big game show. Legends of the Hidden Temple. By the fall of 1993, Nick had proved its mettle in producing live-action shows. These programs were the network's earliest and most loaded calling card. Hidden Temple was no exception. It brought in contestants between the ages of 12 to 14 who would compete in rounds of physical activities and trivia questions. They'd earn points by winning the challenges and eliminate competitors each round. Those that went home first didn't leave empty-handed. In fact, the meager consolation prizes were mostly an opportunity to slot in sponsored product placements. Runners-up received things like savings bonds from Hershey's chocolate or sometimes Starkist canned tuna. These prizes improved slightly with each round, graduating to video games and hush puppy sneakers. Still, these were little more than the average pre-teen could buy with saved allowance money. After rounds of competing, the last team standing finally reached the grand finale. They'd go on the Temple Run, a haunted house-type maze with a bevy of puzzles, obstacles, and ladders. The show aired 120 Temple Runs, which contestants only won 32 times. Less than one quarter of the kids took home a grand prize. And while these odds were certainly better than the 1% rate of winning blackjack in Vegas it was clear that 25% was still pretty far from a fair shot. 
TV critics cite the AV Club called the show practically unwinnable. An honest assessment. Others speculated that the challenges were made so difficult as to ensure fewer winners, meaning that sponsors would have to dole out less prizes. If this was true, it was a grim reality for kids expecting a fair shot at winning. Contestant Keely Garza looked back on her time on the show and considered its difficulty, saying, I don't think the showrunners had really any idea that this game was practically impossible for a kid between the ages of 12 and 14 to complete. Garza recalled that as a 12-year-old, by the time she made it to the temple run, she was exhausted, which didn't help the frightening haunted house aspect of the task ahead of her. Inside, scary temple guards, grown adults dressed in masks, were planted strategically. Garza remembered, when the second guard got me and ushered me through that little door to the back of the set, I just burst into tears. I was scared. I was tired. Even decades later, 31-year-old Garza was sure of one thing. Anything involving scary surprises triggers bad memories of her temple run. While Nick kept airing its game shows in abbreviated multi-year chunks, the network also relied on other off-color programs. Specifically, ones that could drive home its devil-may-care attitude covertly, without upsetting parents. As the Chicago Sun-Times put it in 1991, for 12 years, cable television's only channel expressly for kids, Nickelodeon, has been without the most common staple of all children's television programming, cartoons. But this would all change, and the new Nicktoons would be unlike anything that children or adults had seen before. Coming up, animation becomes Nickelodeon's bread and butter only to reveal darker themes. Now back to the story. By the early 1990s, Nickelodeon proved it could be a tour de force in providing exciting, live-action children's programming, especially with its game shows. Naturally, though, they would need to expand, and in August of 1991, the network unrolled the other side of its slate with three new animation series, Rugrats, Doug, and The Ren and Stimpy Show. A steady pipeline would follow on their heels, Rocco's Modern Life in 1993, Hey Arnold in 1996, and of course, SpongeBob SquarePants at the close of the century in May of 1999. But as the network's president, Geraldine Jerry Laybourne, would realize in hindsight, the shows were layered, very layered. Animators are not saints, Laybourne said. Go to any animation studio. They all have sacrilegious and nasty things up. Meaning those crafting the shows weren't quite so concerned about what was appropriate as they were about what they could get away with. Children's animation is a space that has to toe a fine line. Engaging, but accessible. Witty, but not inappropriate. Exciting, but not too violent. However, the spirit of counterculture at Nick often gave showrunners a wide berth to do as they pleased, which included burying extremely mature themes in their shows via double entendre, allusions, and innuendo. One of the network's most enduring animated programs from the 90s was Rocco's Modern Life, a little show about an Australian wallaby. 
Children would tune in to watch Rocco navigate his fictional Great Lakes town, always alongside his fellow anthropomorphic friends. Not quite as wholesome as it seemed. The cartoon, which was aimed at the 6- to 11-year-old crowd, soon caught the attention of more than just youngsters with its, quote, effervescent lunacy, as Vanity Fair put it. Rocco's dirty jokes flew over the heads of children, but they certainly lodged in the ears of adults. College kids loved its campy, wry style, delighting in how the show pushed its limits. Rocco's Modern Life only ran for three years from 1993 until 1996 in keeping with the network's reputation for not overextending its series. Yet that was ample time for it to come under fire for its use of innuendo and lewd references. To start at the tip of the iceberg, the episode titles. Some of the most grating included Schnittheads, Who Gives a Buck, Boob-Tubed, Commuted Sentence, and Love Spanked. These were often indicative of what was ahead in the plotline. Take one decidedly risque episode in which Rocco finds a newspaper classified ad looking for a specialty phone operator. He wasn't signing on to be a telemarketer. One scene covertly portrayed the wallaby working as a phone sex operator. Rocco sits next to a sign that says, Be hot, be naughty, be courteous. Then he answers the phone and says, Oh baby, oh baby. This was just one example of the show's penchant for layering in different levels of innuendo. Another was the recurring setting of Rocco's favorite fast food joint, Choky Chicken. The slogan on the corner of the stand, in a less bold font but still visible to viewers, read, It sticks to ya. The joke remained embedded in the show for over three quarters of its episodes. Finally, as the fourth season was approaching, the upper echelons of Nickelodeon were notified that the name Choky Chicken was synonymous with masturbation. For one final season, it was renamed Chewy Chicken. This wasn't the show's first dance with censorship, but it would sometimes take months or even years for regulators to pinpoint where exactly the inappropriate content was buried. This was particularly true with an episode titled Road Rash. While it aired during the normal season, it was pulled from the roster before going into syndication. The grounds for its removal were unsurprisingly blatantly inappropriate content. In the episode, Rocco and his bovine pal named Heifer stop at a motel loosely veiled as one for sexual escapades. After being banned from rebroadcast, the episode reached a type of forbidden cult status. It appeared sporadically on niche and often international platforms. In truth, the backlash from being too lewd likely undercut the more broad social commentary the show could have expanded on. Beyond the dirty jokes, it also dug into topics like racism, interracial marriage, discrimination, and sexual identity. While these topics were important to discuss, they were presented to a wide range of ages. Everyone knows that from ages 6 to 11, children range widely in terms of emotional maturity. Arguably, these different age groups need different nuanced explanations, and alas, a 30-minute animated cartoon didn't have time for that. 
This was certainly apparent in the 1996 episode Closet Clown. The plotline has routinely returned to the spotlight after creator Joe Murray acknowledged it was an allegory for coming out. No one can dispute that representation and discussion of characters who weren't heteronormative was direly needed in 90s media. However, how the topic was presented on Rocco's Modern Life and the climate in which the show existed didn't really facilitate a meaningful dialogue. Take, for example, the clandestine steps that were taken to even get the episode made. As Joe Murray put it, they decided specifically not to make the plot about Rocco himself. He told Cosmopolitan in 2018, had an earnest character like Rocco struggled with his identity, the hidden meaning of the episode would be much clearer and less funny. I think it's why it went over the network's heads. By utilizing a side character with an important emotional arc as its punchline, the topic was able to slide in under the radar. Murray later clarified that the writers of the show had worked on the episode with an advisor from GLAAD, the Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation. But one can only wonder then why the topic had to be so camouflaged, especially when the network's animated programs had relative carte blanche. TV critic site The AV Club offered some insight, pointing out a juxtaposition of frustrating minor issues butted up against more serious, complicated ones, all while functioning in an absurdist setting. To pit these two extremes in the same show created a nearly incomprehensible beast for children. Parents could hardly view these themes as thoughtful social commentaries when they were peppered with innuendo. And so the valuable conversations about identity and the inappropriate undertones essentially canceled each other out. Despite the controversial references and allusions of Rocco's modern life, the show was tame in contrast to its edgier, more violent counterpart. Ren and Stimpy. For four years from 1991 through 1995, the shenanigans of a rage-filled chihuahua named Ren and his pal, a flaky cat named Stimpy, graced the network. During the decade, it was Nickelodeon's most successful cable program. Kids were enamored with its shrill protagonists and their physical antics. According to the New York Post, it took but four episodes for the show to hit a 4.0 Nielsen score, which even to this date is equated to primetime television. The show was everything mass-marketed cartoons weren't. Nuanced, weird, and with plenty of mature undertones. However, it swung so hard in the opposite direction, leaning on violence, vulgarity, and shock value, that it would raise flags across the board. As Vulture put it, it was a revolting, occasionally terrifying revelation. Not quite the tagline you'd expect for something targeted directly at young, malleable minds. Ren and Stimpy hit all sorts of topics that young audiences weren't prepared to digest. As storyboard artist Bill Ray put it, some of the material was shocking. It was so intense, it was going to stun children. Ray admitted that this was bad news for a burgeoning television network looking to entertain, not terrify, kids. Certain storylines, such as one including a verbally abusive father figure, were sidelined by the network's standards and practices department long before they ever made it to air. Other grim plots did reach viewers at home. 
take Stimpy's invention, which shapes into a dark commentary on manipulation of emotions. Stimpy forces his pal Ren to wear a happy helmet against his will, essentially mind control. While this doesn't sound so severe overall, context is everything in animation. As Ren tries to resist the helmet, there are disturbing mechanical cranking sounds and the crunch of cracking bones. The visual art is similarly dark. It's played as a sort of cartoonish torture scene. It was clear from a creative perspective that the intention of the show was not to satisfy parents looking for tasteful, clean programming. Ren and Stimpy was intended to break the mold. As the LA Times put it, the show was destined to be ribald. But in seeking originality, the program's original creator, John Chris Felusi, had crafted something so off-color that eventually it had to be wrangled in. What's more, Chris Felusi had a sneaky method of sending one version of storyboards to the network for approval, only to later replace them with something decidedly more edgy. The network was displeased, and the messy, often delayed production process eventually reached a boiling point. He was fired in September of 1992. Chris Felusi's reputation would remain under fierce debate. At first, he denied being terminated as showrunner, and in 2018, he was accused of sexually abusing two young women throughout the 1990s. While these allegations pertained more to Chris Felusi's actions at his own production company, he was nonetheless a dark association for Nickelodeon. Chris Felusi's absence from Ren and Stimpy was immediately visible. The show was decidedly less edgy and violent. Still, the change of creative power didn't ease criticism. A year later, in 1993, the New York Times went so far as to deem the show terminally tasteless. Other critics held similar opinions, such as Daniel Pinkwater, a media commentator for NPR. Though Pinkwater had been reporting on children's television for years, he was surprised by the shock value of Ren and Stimpy. He remarked, They are monstrous. They are destructive. This stuff is garbage and poison. He went on to add that for all its brutality, he couldn't look away, saying Ren and Stimpy is beautiful in the way that the Picasso's Guernica is beautiful. Pinkwater's comments indicate two things. First, he was obviously delighted by the show's nuance, comparing it to highbrow fine art. Which informs the more problematic second notion Ren and Stimpy didn't appear to be a program made for children. After all, the likelihood that all these nuanced references were digested by kids was slim. Business Insider had similar thoughts, stating, There was no way any kid with average intelligence could ever relate to a good chunk of the subject matter. In reality, the true weight of how ill-fit the program was for kids didn't land until nearly a decade later. In the mid-2000s, cable network Spike TV purchased the rights to air the program in all its uncensored glory. And this version, addended to Ren and Stimpy adult party cartoon, permitted everything that had been previously cut, including spousal abuse and eating boogers. Which brings us back again to how the network's programming from the 1990s pertains to more recent years. 
Take Nick's decision to bring back the late-night block, the 90s or all that, in 2011. There's often a deep urge, especially in times of crisis or uncertainty, to return to what is familiar, a golden age or what have you. In this case, Nickelodeon's golden age. However, the smashing popularity of the 2011 revival was only made possible by the adults who tuned in, not by children. The kids of today probably wouldn't understand the jokes of Rocco's, just as their parents didn't 20 years ago. Carl Wilson reflected on this in a New York Times essay responding to the Nick nostalgia boom. Bringing back old things, no matter how popular, doesn't negate the fact that they may have been broken to begin with. As Wilson says, what's revived is never truly faithful to the original, but it can remind us that memory is material and nostalgia is never transparent. Thanks for listening to The Dark Side Of. Next week, we're delving into East Coast versus West Coast rap and the bitter feud between two music legends, Biggie and Tupac. You can find more episodes of The Dark Side Of for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. Just open the app and type The Dark Side Of in the search bar. We'll see you next time. The Dark Side Of was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Carrie Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of The Dark Side Of was written by Mackenzie Moore, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Richard Rossner and Kate Leonard. <laughs>